Hello. So Casey, once again, we're back for another exciting conversation, a conversation me and you've been having for quite some time about education bills, the role of educators right now, how are folks preparing teachers to enter this new political landscape we find ourselves in? How are you feeling, Casey? Well, you know, Jamil, like we, we keep hearing about all of these bills coming out, the, the don't say gay bills, the the bills around critical race theory, other curriculum um, yes. issues, the aggressive school board meetings, uh, book banning initiatives, all of this. Um, and, you know, you and I chat about all kinds of things, but you were the first one to me who, who said, I wonder what this is like for people who are learning to be teachers right now. Yes. Like, what would that be like? A already um, hard profession. A very hard profession. Um, and wondering, like, what kind of impact is this having and how are like, how do you even prepare um, teachers these days to go into a pretty hot climate, you know, when it comes to, um, you know, the politics of, of the classroom? So you've had this on your mind for some months now. I have, you know, the role of parental rights in education, the role of parental involvement. How does this impact teachers? How does this impact queer students? Um, when we know queer students in education already have a hard enough time, how will this impact their learning? How will this impact their development, their sense of identity? How will this impact queer families has been on the top of my brain? Um, the role of intersectionality, you know, if you're a person of color that's also queer, how will this feel to navigate the, the K-12 system? How is this preparing you to be a productive citizen, a citizen that's confident in oneself? Um, so very important conversations. We have a lot to talk about today and we have a perfect guest, um, joining us, Ronnie Joe Draper, who is a lifelong educator, um, and who is many things. So you'll hear uh, a lot from her in this episode. One of the many things that she is, is the president of the board of the ACLU of Utah, um, involved in PFLAG, a number of LGBT organizations, um, but also uh, was a classroom teacher, math and science classroom teacher, and taught folks how to be teachers. So um, she spent her whole life either as a student or a teacher um, and has been training folks on how to, how do you support all students in the classroom? Um, how do you, um, you know, create a sense of, of, of safety, belonging, equity, justice, um, for your, for your students. Um, so just someone with a lot of uh, great perspectives to share with us. So Ronnie Joke, welcome to Real Talk. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yes, I've been so excited to meet you. So excited to have this conversation. So let's start with first. So we, there's so many bills coming out that we're hearing in the news. You know, Florida is really known right now for the Don't Say Gay bill that's attacking gender and sexuality specifically for students K through three, um, which is really an odd, I feel like an odd place to stand. I'm not really sure what's yeah. happening kindergarten to third grade around gender and sexuality, but also they're framing the band around things that are age appropriate. So that may impact other grades to our K through 12, um, bane discussion at all, seems like that's a place in which they're trying to lead. How are you preparing your students to enter landscapes that may be politically hostile to certain ideas around gender, sex, race, um, and things of that no nation? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think education's always been political. I mean, I don't think that, mm -hmm. I just, that's, you know, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not being clever like that. That's just what we know about education. Um, and so, you know, so we always have to have that conversation with folks who are becoming teachers. Hmm. One of the things I tell teachers is look very closely at your curriculum. What does your curriculum mm -hmm. say you must do? Um, and I, and I don't think, you know, for, for my students, um, you know, sometimes they, they're not maybe familiar really with the curriculum. You know, they're becoming teachers. They haven't really got into the curriculum and looked at it. And they're not they're not aware of 
what's specified in the curriculum and where there are spaces in the curriculum for them to have the freedom to make curricular decisions based on who their students are, what who their, those families are and, and those sorts of things. I think in early childhood, like K, that K-3 setting, the focus of like social studies curriculum is on things like um, who's your family? Who's in your community? What is our, who's in our neighborhood? You know, just like really focusing on the local life of young people. And so what we, what we know that we have are, are great books that we share about, you know, here's my mom, here's my dad, here's my dog, here's my grandma, you know. Um, and we have increasingly over the past several years have had more access to books showing different kinds of families, mm-hmm. which is really important. You know, if you're mm-hmm. a kid who has been adopted, if you're a kid who's in foster care, if you're a kid being raised by your grandma, if you are a kid being raised by two moms, if you're a kid who has a mom and a stepdad and a dad and a stepmom, like we have so many different family configurations mm-hmm. and we need, I think that we, we've become increasingly aware that we need to honor that in the classroom. I think, unfortunately, there are people who have the misconception that if I teach um, that, you know, here's, here's Susie and here are her two dads, that somehow I've taught something about the, the intimate relationship between the fathers, right? When I know I don't have to do that if I teach about Susie and here's Susie's mom and here's Susie's dad. I don't, I don't have to provide any graphic or um, detailed description of what that means to be in that relationship. So, you know, I, I think that we're not giving children enough credit. Yes. Yeah. And I think I was just hearing this morning um, some clips of, of school board meetings where folks are reading two lines of a whole book out of context. And mm-hmm. this is even for, for high school age kids. It's like, well, of course, you're going to have a discussion about this whole book, you know. Right. Um, and the level of critical thinking that. I think it, it, a lot of this legislation just assumes that that we're not that students are not capable critical thinkers, or that somehow, you know, like gayness is uh, contagious and inherently inappropriate. Um, right. You know. Right. Well, and we are we're just not that nitpicky, or we haven't been that um, that haven't raised that same level of scrutiny or whatever toward um, books, novels, media that portray, um, you know, heterosexual relationships. Um, Even when those heterosexual relationships, I mean, I don't even know if I want to describe it that way, are problematic, you know, even in the case of assault or even in the case of, um, you know, what we might consider unhealthy relationships that we wouldn't necessarily encourage um, young people or anybody to emulate. We haven't said, take those books off the shelf, uh-huh. right? That, that we, that we sort of understand, well, maybe there's a place for, you know, investigating all of these sorts of situations, reading about them, even reading about things that you hope a person never experiences for themselves in real life to be able to talk about them, to be able to empathize and think through. Um, so I don't know why we don't do the same for, you know, other queer relationships. I'm also troubled by, you know, how much and, and, you know, you're familiar with this too, like how, how much we're like more comfortable perhaps showing um, 
queer relationships that are like, uh, you know, like warning stories or like, you know, mm. be careful. You don't want to be, this is what will happen to you if you actually are, um, you know, in a same gender relationship or whatever. And, um, and that we, we're, we're afraid somehow of, of having a, a book with, you know, queer relationships, queer families, where at the end it says they all live happily ever after, you know, that we don't, right. we, we've, we've, we've not up until recently really stepped into that. And for whatever reason, that's causing fear, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Amongst well, non-queer folks. And, and so queer folks obviously are, are, are freaked out too. I mean, I'm not gonna act like mm -hmm. homophobia only affects mm. one group of people, but. Yeah. I think it also comes from a place of over-sexualization of queer people. Yeah. Like when we For have sure. a conversation about any queer people, it's merely on the basis of sex. Mm -hmm. uh, when it's like queerness itself has all aspects of life to it. And mm -hmm. there's experiences that are queer focused and not sex focused. And I think a lot of times people that are straight do not see that actively or understand that actively. Mm. And so when they hear, oh, my teacher in kindergarten is reading a book with two dads, with two moms, et cetera, their first idea of what that book may look like or sound like is directly linked to sex and something extremely graphic that they don't want their kindergarten listening to. That I is such a good point. Yeah, I think it's more on the biases mm -hmm. of that particular parent without understanding that queer families is so much more than how those two parents behave in the bedroom but about right. their whole selves. I don't, I don't think people are necessarily comprehending that. Um, and I think, and I think that, 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 and I think it's sort of like this, this, like, um, in that conversation, we kind of get, we kind of get stuck a little bit because, you know, you know, when I've said, well, this is not just about sex, then, then people have said, well, why mention mm. their sexuality mm. at all? If it's not about sex. Like, well, unfortunately, this is these are the these are the words that we have. Yeah, right. yeah. Like I didn't make what up the words. Here? I'm just I just showed up, and mm -hmm. these were the words that people were using, and so, um, you know that, and maybe that's why I've been like queerness better because it doesn't have the word sex in it, and mm -hmm. and I can think about my queerness, you know, all day in all aspects of my life. Um, and, but, but there's something about being in those relationships and, and, and it's the same, it's gotta be the same for heterosexual people. I have to imagine that they choose those relationships, not on the basis of intercourse, but on the basis of their own authenticity. Like, what does it mean to be home? Uh -huh. What? Uh -huh how do I share my dreams? How do I make a life? How do I make a family? Like, you know, how do I even do breakfast with another human being? You know, all <laughs> yeah. of those yeah. like just basic yeah. kinds of Interpersonal relationships. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and who is this person I'm doing? I'm doing these things with, or maybe I'm not doing this with any person. I'm, I'm on my own and I've got a fluffy cat or, whatever and i'm just like living life as a full human in other ways mm -hmm. well i think about how important it is you know for people to see themselves in stories um to see themselves and that starts really young i mean i was a lesbian for many years came out as trans mid-30s I graduated high school in 1999. So that was really before GSAs. Um, mm -hmm. There were like whispers about, you know, the stereotypes with the, the gay gym teachers and this and that, but there was no out person in my decent sized high school. And it was just really confusing. You know, it's like, I know I'm not like I'm doing, I'm, I'm like trying to figure it out. But like, when you don't have 
the examples um, in popular culture. You don't have the examples in um, in the stories you've ever read, or in right. human beings who teachers, um, folks who are in these um, like caregiving professions around you. Like you never see any of it except like you know you know you don't want that because like that seems like I've gotten all these messages from society that I shouldn't be this way. Um, and you know, then like people go through a lot of suffering when they don't can't find um, an example for how to be, you know, or uh, can't see a path forward for their authentic self. Right. Um, well, and all of your classmates. So you miss that, but then all of your classmates also read the same literature or didn't have access to those messages as well and so mm -hmm. they didn't develop a conception of what life is like with trans people right you know how do i how do i live with trans how do i how could i possibly use the same restroom mm -hmm. as a trans person imagine if if growing up everybody learned that from the get-go and it wasn't just a big surprise like oh like here's how you use the restroom um right you know, it doesn't have to wash, be wash your hands right, right. And, and so you know you need that representation representation for sure um that your peers needed that representation mm. and that education also so that they could be um, better participants in our civil society. And I think that's part of what we're seeing now. We're seeing these, these bills or whatever coming out of fear, partly because folks have not been educated. They've been miseducated on what does it mean to be trans? Obviously there's lots of miseducation about that. Um, but, you know, we've seen what it looks like in the past around a lot of miseducation around what it means to be gay Mm -hmm. Um, I think that we've, we've done some work to re-educate folks, but what we're seeing right now is just the, that miseducation around trans people. And so then we have just a lot of bad policy being written. Yes. I think there's so many benefits to telling queer stories, black stories, indigenous stories, all these stories that make up America, that make up our rich history, that tell to the struggles of average Americans and the triumphs of average Americans. I think often in education, those in power only want to see their self and those accomplishments of their own communities in education. And I think education has been a huge usage of power. If we don't teach about trans mm -hmm. people, we don't teach about black people, we don't teach about Latinos and et cetera, those folks won't be in power. They won't see themselves in powerful positions. Um, so I think a lot of times it comes down to that as well. And we also are not humanizing people when we're not telling their stories. You know, the best way to humanize, to humanize a person and to see them as an actual person, not some um, boogie monster in the closet, <laughs> is to right. tell the stories and see how similar they are to you. Um, I think people would be amazed with how similar queer people are to straight people. Like how you were saying earlier, you know, do they have a fluffy cat? <laughs> They're right. dating people because they like the person and they have the same hobbies and they go on very similar dates. There are things that are unique to queer culture. However, there's so many similarities of the human experience in general. And I think folks have so much fear around, like Casey was saying earlier, it's contagious. You know, if you put on this one movie in this class and mm -hmm. you read one chapter, all the children in this class will be queer. It's part of the gay agenda. I didn't heard about it on the news. I didn't seen it somewhere online. It's the queer agenda. All three of us, we meet at night in a back room and we talk about how to turn the world queer. Only <laughs> if it was that simple. I think sometimes- If it was that simple, that's how I would teach math or science. I, would, I wouldn't even waste my mm. energy on, the, on, on that. I would be like, like can we get kids yeah. to learn to read? I mean, I, right. I, I, yeah. let's make it more basic. Uh, imagine but, that, like you could just read a book in the whole class. Wow, right. the whole class just got it. I need to, I need figure. to know, I need to know that pedagogy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, 
So what yeah. does when you're so we a lot of times with diversity conversations, um, it tends to revolve around the humanities, the social sciences. I'm curious, like when you're training teachers um, to like to go off and teach math and science, um, how do you how do you sort of train them to support all the students in their class? Um, yeah, what does that look like? Um, it's a couple of things. Part of it, one thing is for to break down um, mythologies around math and science or engineering mm. or, you know, any of the STEM fields, I suppose, you know, break down the myth- mythology that only men can do this. Oh. Just boys are good at this. You know, women aren't good at science. Um, Latinos don't do science. Um, you don't see black engineers. Like, what would that even look like? That's not what black people do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to break down that mythology, and, 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 but to help teachers understand that they may be coming into classrooms with those biases, right? right. That, that there are just some kids who aren't going to get mathematics. So then when they don't get mathematics, it's just like, some people don't get it. And that, that, that doesn't, instead of saying, oh, this student isn't getting it, maybe I need to reteach because this is gettable. Um, like, I get it. That means other people can get it. Um, I'm, not, I'm not special in this way. So um, to be able to, under, to, to, to change expectations. We, mm-hmm. we know, for instance, in, a, in mathematics settings, when a, a male student tries to make an answer and, and that answer is incorrect, a teacher will stay with that student longer mm-hmm. until the student gets the correct answer. When a female student makes an incorrect answer, the teacher might say, oh, okay, who can help her out? And then have a male student answer. It's like so subtle, but the expectation yeah. is this student isn't going to get it. So I need to have somebody else come in. And I am almost done, baby. Um, <laughs> and um, and let, you know, let, this, let, let her know that I believe you can get it. And I'm going to stay with you in this pedagogical moment until you do get it instead of just like have somebody else answer and never really even find out if the student got it or not. Right. But we, but we have those kind of expectations. The other thing that happens in um, mathematics and in science is, you know, we, we look at the kind of problems that are put out. Oh, sure. Um, and we look at the word problems and, you know, there's been work in changing the names of the humans and the word problems. Um we haven't done as much even just to change the genders. Like we haven't said like, you know, Tom and Frank are planning a birthday party for their daughter. Um, you know, they've invited so many guests, like, you know, how word problems always have like some sort of situation. We, we could do better at just querying that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing is, um, there's been some work done in looking at how a lot of those word problems are just like white people problems. <laughs> like the situation itself. The situation yeah. itself. Yeah. Yes. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, like yeah. I gotta put like I gotta I've gotta tile my pool. <laughs> Sounds like a white person problem. Mm. I gotta, you know, I'm putting wallpaper up here. I need I mean how many cupcakes do I need to make, right? But there's been some talk about why can't those problems be like social justice problems? Like they're, you know, they're this percentage of um, black people are on dialysis versus this number of white people. I, I can do all kinds of mathematics around that situation. You know, why are black women dying more frequently in um, childbirth? I can mathematize that. I can ask questions about why, why is the distance to a vegetable so much farther in certain neighborhoods? You know, I could, I could bring mathematics to bear, but. Oops. 
Um, but I choose not to. I choose not to bring that mathematics to bear on certain questions. And that's a political decision I make. And yeah. so instead of taking up um, these other problems, I just keep talking about pretty much like white middle-class problems. And I don't talk about other problems. Again, this affects stu marginalized students because we never are talking about the problems that they're actually facing in their neighborhoods with their families, but it affects kids who are white middle-class because they're also not considering these problems either. I'm sorry. I'm on grandma duty. So I have to take whatever this little thing is out. Can you go play for a bit? Put that in the trash for me. It's important. Thanks, sweets. Uh, no. Well, so those story, I mean, word problems. I mean, that's another way of storytelling and another yeah, way right. that folks are not represented in stories. And it is like, it truly is so subtle because it's like, oh, I went to math class again or whatever your opinion might be mm -hmm. of math class. But it's like, we're paying attention to the math, but I honestly, it's been so long since I've been in the math class, but there's so much narrative yes, in right. how, we do, how we do math and, and thinking about how powerful um, an intervention it is to train teachers to recognize their own bias and also to recognize the accumulation that their students have experienced um, as a possibility for interrupting it. But that also kind of talks to the way that that student will see the usage of math and how they can use that in their own lives. Like I come from a community that historically does not achieve well in mathematics, right? Like the entire classroom is not doing well in math. Um, and if we're a mostly black and brown classroom, why is that? And I'm sure there's some right. other answers in terms of teaching and access to books and things of that nature, but also the problems themselves. I have always felt growing up, mathematics didn't really have a place of importance. I didn't really see mm -hmm. it as something important. If it didn't have something to do with money, I would always say as a child, there was no point. You know, like I needed to have right. a mortgage one day, I needed to pay bills. So like that kind of math is important, but figuring out how to tell a pool, I can't swim. Um, that's very unhelpful <laughs> for me. Right, right. But focusing on wealth inequity, I would have been interested in that as a child. I would have been interested in middle school around mm -hmm. that, focusing on mm -hmm. statistics that were about my community, focusing on maybe even couponing, right? So many mm -hmm. Americans are lower income. So many children may go to the store and coupon with their parents. Learning how to do that in math class and seeing that as active math may make them more interested in math, may make them go home and be like, hey, mom, I learned how to do X, Y, and Z. Look what I can do. And so it's mm -hmm. almost like using mathematics to help serve the community in which you teach. And I think if educators looked more closely at the communities in which they were teaching in and how to best serve those communities, um, the role of education in this country would be a lot more equal and equitable. Yeah, and I and and looking into those communities requires us to to know our students to know where they're coming from, to ask them, like, what are the questions that you have? What are the problems that you're facing right now? And sometimes, I don't know if we just don't trust students or we don't think that they're clever, but I've always found my students very clever and mm -hmm. very interested in their own worlds. And that could always be as a place to begin. I mean, just like we were talking about early childhood and caring about like, who's your family? What's in your neighborhood? You know, start with their local selves. I mean, you know, kids at all ages care about that. What's going on in your neighborhood? I did a unit on, um, on, it was called um, Yourself. That was our first unit I did when I was a high school mathematics teacher. And it was just all like, the question was, are you an average teenager? And, hmm. um, and some of my students were like, I'm above average. I'm better than average. I'm like, prove it. Um, so 
you know, we were doing all kinds of gathering statistics, um, analyzing things. They were doing all kinds of surveys in schools. Like I was teaching in the nineties. So they were, they were saying things, they were asking questions like, do you have a brown couch? And, you know, you know, were you born in Nevada? You know, they're just asking, you know, all these questions and collecting data to find out like, I'm like the other kids in school. I'm not like the other kids in school. Um, and we were able to do all this, um, all kinds of mathematics around that, but they were, they were excited about that. But then we could also talk about things like what was the average, what's the average age of taking up cigarette smoking? What's the, what is, um, what, what, what do we know about dropout? What do we know about, um, about, uh, dating violence? How can, how, how does that, how does that play into the mathematics that we're, we're learning about and we're able to have some really useful and interesting conversations. And my students weren't getting irritated that they were talking, that we were talking about, um, you know, standard deviation and mean, median and mode and range and do these statistics make sense? They just, they were able just to take it on. And they were learning the mathematics as well. I just uh, truly makes me want to take a math class with you. And mm -hmm. I it just is it's striking me how um, how abstract math always seemed to me. Like really, even at higher levels, at lower levels, you know, it always was presented as sort of like apolitical, abstract, right? Um, almost just like a skill set, but not. I really never got the piece the where it's connected to my life. I never felt connected to my life ever. And what power I mean, there is there. I mean, I think anytime anybody wants to present anything to you as apolitical. Right. It, it's already like, for me, like sounding the alarms, mm. you know, that we have science. I mean, we, we know that the, the problems of science because it's been dominated by white men and what that has meant for what we don't know about female heart attack, what we don't mm. know about, um, you know, healthcare for black people, what we don't know about, you know, all sorts of things, you know, how long it took us to, to, um, to truly investigate HIV, um, you know, so that, you know, these, you know, science isn't apolitical either. And, you know, who, who we support in schools to become scientists makes a difference uh -huh. for the kinds of science that get done, the kind of discoveries that get made, um, the kind of medicine that we get to have, the kind of buildings that we get to have you know i've been you know reading articles about what does it mean to, to queer um urban planning and what does it mean you know so we we can go into any kind of thing right. and think about that i mean you know you you get into your automobile and you decide like where i mean the, the 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 famous kind of deal is like there's no place to put your purse i mean it's funny but it's also like if there was a human that used a purse designing automobiles, would that be different? Instead of having like 47 places to put a drink, would I have, could I have at least one place to put a purse? And, um, you know, again, the different kinds of bodies that use that vehicle, um, if it's only being designed by people with one kind of body, mm -hmm. it's going, the result is going to be a vehicle that is very useful for certain bodies and other bodies have to really accommodate that. Yes, that is some radical thinking. I think often because, like you said, science is dominated by a very particular population of people historically. Um, science has served that population of people. Mm -hmm. When we think about things being inclusive of race, gender, sexuality, et cetera, body types, um, you need that representation in those areas. I also think about science, like 
either reinforcing stereotypes or breaking them down, right? right. Like there's so many examples in history of science not being good science, but using it as a way of supporting racism, using it as a way of supporting this is mm -hmm. why these type of people cannot be here. This is why we do X, Y, and Z to this group of people because of science. Um, so representation is so important. And I love how we're talking about how kids as young as third grade or as old as ninth grade have the capacity to understand complex issues. And I think we often, when we talk about children and young adults in general, we talk about it as if they can't grasp things that are really complicated and things that may be gray areas of life. Children of all ages are dealing with so many issues now, right? Like taking care of a loved one, maybe a death in a family, maybe they're working. Like children mm -hmm. are living so many complex lives and already probably mm -hmm. have responsibilities where the comprehension is so much larger than the way these discussions make them seem. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that we are, you know, of course we want to help children be children, but we also need to, you know, help them understand these complex ideas in a nurturing space and schools should be that space. And so we shouldn't be, afraid to have someone who is nurturing, someone who is thoughtful, helping students step through these complex ideas, because where where else are they going to face those? Do we want them to just face them without um, a more mature, nurturing other to help move them through that or, or not? I mean, I think that's part of like what we hope schools would do as well you know, that I want my children, my grandchildren to be in conversation with um, a thoughtful teacher to say, yeah, let's, let's talk about different kind of families, or let's talk about why we need to have different people go into science, or let's talk about, you know, different kinds of, you know, ways that all of us can experience and do art, but this is not that this is not just for some people, but that art is for all people. There's not just an art brain, a math brain, but there our brains are so amazing that they can do all sorts of things. And every brain, everybody can do art, everybody can do math, everybody can play with language. And and I can create a nurturing space where people can can try all those things on. I think, you know, what I you know, in hearing you talk about, you know, I, I want my kids, my grandkids to be having these conversations, these complex conversations with their peers in a nurturing environment with a, with a, a teacher there and, and just, you know, throughout as they, as they grow up. Um, and there's like an inherent trust that I hear in that in, mm -hmm. in your kids, grandkids, and also the, the school environment, but there's an inherent trust that they are capable of that. Um, that I think is what, you know, a lot of these bills um, and just this sort of parents' rights, um, in quotation marks, movement, it really just doesn't inherently trust either kids or teachers or schools. Right. Right. But uh, I, I, I don't know, like, have they not met children? I don't, <laughs> do they not know an eight-year-old? Um, right. You know, We're I so inherently curious and smart and... Right. Wanting and capable, to talk about all these things. Yeah. 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 I, I also think about teachers as first responders. You know, mm -hmm. when you have a child, yeah. that child is spending almost as much time with your teacher than they mm -hmm. are at home, right? They're of spending course. the majority of their day with the teacher. So that child may come to that teacher with problems that they won't even tell their parents at home. Um, and we talk about the classroom as it's supposed to be this safe space, this nurturing environment where you are free to learn, you are free to question life, you are free to be yourself. But bills like the CRT bills and the don't say gay bills, they make that space become hostile. Right. Um, like how can you be a first responder in these situations? How can you support your children? How can they feel comfortable coming out and saying things that may be happening in their lives if we have all these bills saying what we can and cannot discuss in a classroom setting. 
It is tough um, because, you know, teachers are, you know, in, in the daily business of being in the lives of children. And, and so how do, you know, how do you get kids to not talk about things? I don't know how you do that. Um, things are going to come up. You're going to have to address them. Um, in, in some ways, I think that we've got to, you know, for teachers, I think that we've got to be, you know, obviously we have a duty to do what the law sets out, right? We, we don't want to just create a, a bunch of lawless teachers. Um, on the other hand, I do think that we need teachers who are also willing to get into good trouble, um, you know, to use that idea, you know, within a teaching space um, to sort of understand, you know, how to get around things. I know that in Utah, you know, we had um, what we called a no promo homo law. Uh-huh. Um, we famous but we uh we've we got rid of that um mm -hmm. mostly because there were uh lawsuits impending that that the state didn't really want to pay for um but then i knew teachers who were getting around that you know that the teacher couldn't promo homo whatever that meant but um but they would create assignments you know where if students wanted to investigate or whatever because students have a lot more um freedoms even under the first amendment in the classroom than the a teacher does then the you know the teacher could say yeah you can totally investigate um you know marriage equality or look at you know these issues look at that as a civil rights issue or whatever as part of our civil rights unit um because a teacher didn't really have the right to to say that the child couldn't, but the but the but the teacher was being deliberate in knowing that that she was creating that space and opening it up, um, so that that was possible. And that's how she was able to get she was able to be on the right side of the law, but mm -hmm. also be on the right side of morality and um do right by your students and so you know we find teachers who are capable of doing those sorts of things but again like you know your curriculum you know your students you know your neighborhood and you're you make those decisions and i think that's in teacher education that's been my responsibility to help students understand like th th this is what's going to be legal this is what's going to be moral this is what your students need this is what you need and how are you going to respond with all of those things you know even when they say well what if i have a parent come in who's upset like yeah you're gonna have a parent who comes in who's upset and it's okay to say I understand you have great concern about the education of your child. You know, you can empathize. You don't have to be, you're not on a different side than your, than the parent. You're on the same side. You want a good um, experience for the child so that you can say, I want the best experience for your child. So I'm doing these things. And, and, you know, just to be very transparent and say, and, you know, I don't want my child to learn about explicit sex in third grade. <laughs> Neither do I. No. I'm like, I'm like not for that. Um, and so, you know, to to be able to have conversations with parents, um, you know, I think those things are what we need to do as well, um, and be willing to have those kind of conversations with parents. Okay. When we poll parents and um, we do look at polls about like, how do people feel about education? Um, parents, you know, folks will say, the public will say, you know, education, it, it's a problem. There are all these difficulties. And then when you ask them about their particular school where their kids go, they're like, oh no, my school is good. Like mm -hmm. it, my, I trust my teachers and they're doing good yeah. things. And so, there, there's a disconnect between how people are thinking about um, the state of education in general versus right. what they're experiencing on the daily 
um, in their child's school. I mean, there'll be problems once in a while, but I think that mostly parents feel like they have a chance to say things and, and get things straightened out. Um, and so that even when these bills are being passed, when you talk to people who are the most um, uptight about um, saying gay in school or reading certain books or CRT, you know, they'll say, well, this is happening. I heard this happen at somebody else's school down the block or in another neighborhood. They can't necessarily recount things that happened in their particular school. Um, and so, you know, that just really suggests that we're, you know, that, that people are making something out of obviously something that doesn't exist. Hmm. That was powerful. Um, yeah. <laughs> they exist, in, I believe, around seven states currently. Um, mm -hmm. Anti-LGBT legislation comes up all the time, all across the nation. And I even think about like, okay, a student comes out in high school and their peers sure. begin to bully them, right? When mm -hmm. you have laws like a no, pro no promotion of homosexuality, how are you supposed to protect that student by educating your students? Like how- It's like really how tough. Yeah. Because even like a lot of the anti-bullying legislation doesn't address LGBTQ issues at all. And they'll just be sort of anti-bullying in general, like don't bully people. And then I think that even for young kids are like, oh, I didn't bully anybody. I just called that kid gay, or I just told that kid he is going to hell. Um, I, I wasn't bullying him. I was just like, I was informing him proof. what's happening. Yeah. Right. I'm just like letting him know in case he wants to like change his wicked ways. Um, and so, <laughs> wow. um, yeah. and so we, we don't do a good job around that. Um, and, you know, then, you know, then we find odd things like in Utah, they, they passed, they passed more anti-bullying legislation, but part of that is like notifying parents when their child has been bullied. Mm. But then um, LGBTQ organizations were like, ah, hold up, like, are you going to out students? Mm -hmm. um, how is that conversation going to go? Like, your child's being bullied, but now, like, how are we going to have this conversation without outing your child? Right. So, um, you know, these are really delicate things. And then, then we find, you know, places where, you know, legislation is getting on the books where, you know, if teachers find out, you know, if a child comes out to a teacher that that, that the expectation is that that teacher will out that child to their parents, which, right. as you know, is extremely dangerous, um, you know, for a lot of kids that is like no big deal their parents like have helped them come out and um it's been a beautiful wonderful thing and for some parent for some children um that you know they lose their home they lose mm -hmm. you know the community that they lose you know access to food and health care um and so it's just it, it's tricky you know, about what parents get to know and what parents don't get to know about the inner life of their offspring. And even the accountability of that school system then, right? Like if, okay, you out a student to their families and now that child faced child abuse, homelessness, right. now as a food insecurity, how are you taking accountability for the action you just made? Like, are you making sure that child's now whole again? Um, Will you be reporting the child abuse that has happened because you out of that student? Um, how will you be picking up the pieces once that child's life falls apart? I think about right. Well, and how does this contribute even to what you were saying? Uh, um, and I don't remember if we were um, recording at the time or not, but but the um, the numbers of LGBTQ youth who also mm -hmm. find themselves unsheltered. Yeah. Um, sometimes that doesn't happen just because kids have been um, kicked out of their homes, but because they just know they're not safe there. And right. that, that, you know, that of course takes a toll on the kid. And this is where a kid is maybe surviving, but certainly isn't thriving. And, and then the public, you know, we're, we're paying for that. 
-hmm. you know, and we decided not for some reason, not to put that investment in school and have that child be in school and put the investment in that child there so that child could be thriving. We now have to put our investment someplace else, maybe in um, unsheltered community or, um, you know, what we're doing for food insecurity or whatever. But that still, that, that still takes a toll on us as a public. And, and I think this is what public schools are about, right? The public school, I think that some people think, well, public school just means I don't have to pay for it. But public school really means it serves the public. It's in the public's best interest to educate everybody. It's in the public's best interest for children to go to school and feel safe and to, to worry about nothing else than how do I just have a good time here and learn? How do I, how do I graduate? How do I, you know, enter the big wide world in a way that is, um, fills my heart and um, fills a need of the community? That's what public schools should be about. Um, but we're, we're losing that, that, that yeah. sense of what the mission of a public school for the I, public good. Yes. Yeah. Right. I love that. I was, a, I'm a byproduct of the public school system. I went to a public elementary, middle and high school and a public university. So Same. it's really in the best interest of the public to have. You know, great. You know, great. You know I turned out. You know great. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have two lines of thought. I'm thinking a lot of these bills feel like the erasure of people like, well, if we don't mm. say gay, we can erase queer people. Like if we don't have critical race theory, we can erase the accomplishments of people of color from the conversation. We can erase, um, you know, oppression that's happened previous. We can act like it never happened at all. And the imp implications of those actions don't matter in modern context. Um, it feels really erasure. Like we're trying to erase all these right, right. When we know for a fact that queer people aren't going to magically disappear. You know, they were here a hundred right. years ago. They're going to be here in a hundred years, regardless right. of what kind of bill you put into law. And instead of focusing on how can we protect queer students, how can we lower suicide rates? How can we ensure students aren't being bullied in a publicly funded building? Um, we are instead lowering those protections and leaving our students vulnerable to the prison and school pipeline. We're leaving our right. students vulnerable to suicide, to homelessness, to run away from the communities in which do not support them. And we'll only put them in more danger to begin with. Um, so I think about that as well. Right. And again, what I think the public isn't, I, I think the public is in some ways like fine, obviously to harm LGBTQ people, they're fine to harm black people, they're fine, super fine to harm indigenous people. Like mm. what, are we even still here? Um, they're fine to harm immigrants. You know, what is being lost is that it's harming all of us. Mm -hmm. yeah. Everyone's being harmed. Nobody is being served by these bills. Nobody wins, everybody, is hurt. It's it, it it there's acute pain on the because you know if, if you write a bill that says trans girls can't play sports, obviously that you know is just laser focused to harm tra trans girls. Especially but if there's only like four trans girls in the whole state playing sports. Right. Yeah. Right. Like we're, we're, we're really, but, but, but we're, but we've, but with that legislation, what is being lost is how it harms all the girls. It harms mm -hmm. all the boys. It harms all the sports. It's not, it, it everybody, everybody hurts. Mm -hmm. And just because you can't see the pain initially and just because you can see how you're harming one group and you're like, you're, you're, you're making a bargain and you're saying, okay, I'm cool with harming them. 
you're you're not seeing how we're harming everyone that we're harming ourselves as well and um and that that i think is what makes it really hard to take as well it's like mm -hmm. why would we do this to ourselves you know and i think maybe we have to get to a place where we understand that to harm my neighbor is to harm myself to harm my to harm trans people is to harm myself to harm mm -hmm. black people is to harm myself when i when i get there I, I think I'm able to be much more wise in the kinds of legislation that I pass and the kind of education that I want for children. Also, if you harm your neighbor and you start attacking communities and they could be a variety of communities, who's going to protect your community when it's time right. for you to be protected? What makes you think your community is entirely safe from legislation like mm -hmm. this? What makes you right. feel like you can't be the next community on the chopping block of conversations. Right. I, and how do you even want to be in a good neighborhood? Like what what neighborhood are you in right. where your neighbors can't trust you and you can't trust your neighbors? Yeah. 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 This whole conversation is really making me think about, I mean, first of all, like what a distance. I mean, that is an enlightened place to get to. That sense of like, this isn't just harming those, even if you're sympathetic to the, like those poor people, like, oh, that's really hard for trans girls. Let's be an ally to them. But if really seeing it as, as um, it serves the public good, um, these things harm all of us differently, but they do undermine our humanity um, in, in a lot of different and specific ways. Like certainly anything is about trans girls also like pretty specifically harms women in general. Um, right. And up surveillance about femininity and puts a lot of attention on people's bodies. bodies. Yeah. Um, but I just, this whole conversation made me think about how just what a huge job it is to be a teacher. Um, how, I mean, I think about my own education and how important my teachers were to me um, and how actually I didn't, I didn't think that I could because of being queer teach mm. K-12. I mean, that's frankly right. how I ended up teaching college because kids are adults. Um, and I think about how my teachers helped me through really difficult personal times, um, how they really serve as um, like really the public good. They're social workers, they're supporting families, um, a packed schedule, um, now managing the pandemic and everything else that everyone's dealing with. But they like the, the, the caregiving, caretaking, case management kind of work that teachers do on top of the actual teaching bit in the classroom. I mean, it's a tremendous um, job and a tremendous responsibility. Sure. And, what, and it's I think easy about to these... attack teachers. Right. Because we're also attacking, attacking primarily a profession of women. Yeah. And um, so, you know, we can place that where it is and um, we're attacking when we're attacking teaching, we're attacking children and mm -hmm. children are most vulnerable. They don't vote. They don't spend money. You know, so, something I'm thinking about, you know, we, we're talking a lot about like bills and education and what's going around. But I also think about, and I think anybody who's listening can think about an educator that's changed their life. You know, having mm -hmm. a teacher that has shaped the way they think that has encouraged them. And they can think even up into adulthood, you know, they could be 65 and still remember their favorite teacher, mm -hmm. that teacher that loved them, supported them, maybe gave them candy, talked to them, gave them motivation. Um, and I'm thinking back to high school and I didn't think much of it at this time. You know, I had a teacher, her name was Miss Cox. And um, she really helped me as a young adult. You know, she started a GSA. And I was a participant in GSA. I know you talked to Casey about not having one of those back in the day. Mm -hmm. uh, and I didn't really think much of it when I was doing it. Like, okay, this is an after school special, you know, it's a club, we <laughs> together, unity, whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't yeah. think much about it at the time. However, I think it's been six years since high school. 
I cannot even um, fathom how much I have learned from GSA that has carried me safely through adulthood as a queer adult, right? Like learning about safe sex, learning about getting tested, learning about the red flags of a domestic violence relationship, learning about community work, learning about supporting other queer folks, learning how to be like what to do if these situations arrive in your life. What resources my state had, if you became homeless, where would you go? If you know someone that is queer and homeless, where do they go? Like just understanding and learning these things. I didn't think much of it at that time, but when we have educators that can teach and show up for students in their identities, they may not need it at the time that they're getting that information, but mm -hmm. they may think back to those moments. I can think about so many moments in my life where I was like, ooh, Miss Axford said that. Or she would have said this. Or she would have said mm -hmm. I, I have in my adulthood. I have. Um, even though I haven't talked to her in like since I left high school. Um, sure. So educators can make a huge difference in queer students' lives and all students' lives if we allow mm -hmm. them to. Well, I, mean, I that's think the deep for privilege queer students, of the position, right? Yeah. And I think for queer students, I and I tell my students this, you know, I'm as an indigenous woman, I had the privilege of being raised by an indigenous dad. So, you know, so he could tell me like, here's how, here's how you do things. Check out this, look out for this, do this. This is how you have to be, blah, 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 blah. As a queer person, I don't have that, mm. that same opportunity to have somebody saying, check this out, check that, you know, so that I had to sort of figure out on my own, um, you know, and how different would it have been if I could have been able to understand my queerness the same way I understood my indigeneity mm -hmm. um, as I grew up and been able to um, to step into it maybe in a more graceful way. Uh, Casey, I think it's about that time. <laughs> I know, Ronnie Joe, we could really talk to you all day. Um, one, that's right. So we already sort of have been doing this in the context of this conversation, but you know, we like to reimagine with guests what higher, I'm going to say higher education. I mean, typically that's what we're talking about. But, you know, I would say education holistically. Um, in your wildest imagining, you know, what could, what could it look like? Because I think there's a way to look at, you know, the state of education right now and have a really doomsday vision. Certainly, that's sort of easy to do. It's like laid out in front of us. Um, but then there's also, um, you know, incredible possibility, uh, resistance, um, all kinds of things. So anyway, that's what we like to do, I guess, is to, to sort of radically reimagine the state of things. And yeah. Yeah. So what, what, what's there for you in your, in your imagining about what things could be like? I don't know. Things could be beautiful. But I think that we've got to trust humans. We've got to trust our families mm. that we're trying to serve. We've got to we've got to not be afraid of stories, mm. you know, and understand that the stories, you know, the stories that it, that each of the each of th the three of us needed, you know, that we yearn to hear, would have been stories that would have been beautiful for any of our peers. Mm you know, and that, you know, that I've learned beautiful lessons from listening to white straight stories. Um, and I think that my peers would have learned beautiful lessons from listening to queer indigenous stories or, mm. you know, stories of transgender families or black families, queer black people, you know, immigrants you know i think i think that would have enriched all of us and really allowed us to um step into a world that is capable of solving complex problems like what are we going to do with this virus and how are we going to help each mm -hmm. other you know those those are real hard questions and we found ourselves and we've we have found ourselves we find ourselves in a time where we need to depend on each other more and more and more 
an education that prepares us to do that is is vital. Mm. So I I guess I hold out hope because I hang out primarily with young people. Mm -hmm. um, I know it can be better. You know, if you want to yeah. if you want to maintain your hope, hang out with the youth. That's if you want to get sad, if you want to get if you want to get sad, like hang out with the <laughs> with the old. <laughs> but I'm not, so I'm not saying that as an ageist way. I'm just saying like they've they've got they've got good ideas and, and they're ready to they're ready to take it on. Hmm. Jamil, what, what thoughts do you have today? Oh, I always have thoughts. Um, yes, I, do. I just got the weirdest spam call, like just straight exits on the screen. So they're catching on to us. <laughs> but <laughs> somebody's catching on to us. But in my radical imagining, um, queer students don't feel isolated from their communities. They feel mm -hmm. like active and needed parts of their communities, including their school that when queer people don't show up to school because they're sick, they feel missed. Yeah. Um, when they show up to school, they feel loved, they feel embraced. Um, not just because they're queer, but just because of who they are, um, mm -hmm. that they feel one with their community um, and not against it. That's what, I, that's what I'm feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I love all of this. And I'm thinking about like how amazing it would be for in our society and in our schools for people to have the freedom to um, to play with their identity, to try yeah. on different things and to not for feel sure. not feel like they have to like secretly try to figure something out or that something shameful. It's like, oh, I'm gonna, you know, I thought I was bisexual. Yeah, I'm not, you know, or I wanna try my hair this way or I wanna dress this way and allow people the same way that preschool kids very easily and naturally human beings do is to play mm -hmm. with different ways of being, try on different things, different roles, um, that we could all do that. Um, right. And that we could show up authentically, but that that doesn't have to be uh, static for us. Right. For our whole life. And that, and and that, that, we, and yeah. that kind of play just re requires like an absence of fear. Right. Right, that's a But I want to go there. I want to. I want to. I, I want to play in that. Right. Well, this was an amazing conversation, Ronnie Joe. Thank you so so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for inviting me, and thank you for not televising my face <laughs> in the condition I'm in right now. Oh. <laughs> well, thank you.